You are now listening to Out of the Blank. 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 Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. I'm here with Mr. Dean Jones. Hey, how you doing? Thank you for having me. You literally, your name is like a cowboy from like the Western times. I don't even know. I guess that's where all cowboys are from. But when you just hear the word Dean Jones. Thank you. Thank you. I also share the name with a, a Disney actor from the 50s. So I've got an comparison. That's where I'm pulling that from for sure. Well, tell me a little bit about yourself and what do you do professionally? Okay, um, my name is Dean Jones. I'm 54 years old, um, married to another librarian, and we have uh, collectively six kids together. And we live in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area loosely because uh, it's expensive here. So we live on the outskirts of it in an area that's uh, closer to Modesto, actually. But we both work in the Bay Area. What do you do? Well, what do you do professionally? You're a librarian, you said? I'm, you said a libra I'm a librarian at Academic University. Um, I've only been a librarian for a couple of years. I got my um, MLIS late in life, so um, I'm kind of new to it, but, um, but I've been working in libraries for a long time as a paraprofessional, so I've been working for over 16 years in libraries. So is this just like, a, in, where did you get your inspiration, first of all, to not really just become a librarian, but first of all, have you noticed the overall effect that you get when you sit in a library? It seems like I'm more able to finish my work, more able to complete any task, just with the ambiance of just a library in general. Um, I was inspired to be a librarian. Um, librarians have been, libraries and librarians have been very important to me throughout my life. Um, when I was a kid, I had um, severe, I've always had severe learning disabilities and I still have them to this day. And um, I didn't read early, I read really late. So um, reading came hard to me. My mother is, was a hardworking working mom and she didn't have time for any BS. So she was like, listen, you're gonna read or I'm gonna, you know, you're gonna get it. So she had to basically sit on me every day and force me to learn how to read. And one of the things uh, that was integral was we, Children's books when I was a kid back in the late 60s, early 70s really sucked. So I didn't really inter in interested in reading them because they were kind of crappy. So she'd take me to the library and say, just get anything you want. I don't care. I don't have time for any monkey business. Just get whatever you want to read and we'll read that. So I get books of mythology, history, uh, war, uh, all kinds of stuff. And the librarians would be like, are you sure you want to have him read this? My mom's like, look, if he reads it, I don't care. You know, <laughs> I want him to read. That's all I want. So I got interested in libraries early because of that, because for me, they're a place of all these possibilities and finding out about interesting things. Because I was always interesting in like, you know, I was a big horror movie and comic book nerd as a kid. So anything on, you know, war or uh, you know, mythology, history, anything interesting was always something I was looking for. So I was, I'd always head to the adult section, not really the kids section. And that's how I got into reading, uh, was being able to be empowered to read stuff outside of the Dick and Jane books or the uh, Cat in the Hat books. Yeah, see, with reading, though, I never really truly admired it until, like, at, at my age now. At least back in the day when I was a kid, it was like, oh, fuck, we got we to gotta read books. 
I don't want. I don't want to read books. What books we got to read? Oh, we're gonna read Macbeth, or we're gonna read um, the two toads that walked away. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't want to read that. Well, this is what we're reading, so you're gonna read it. And they ended up, yeah. Well, they ended up throwing me into a enrichment classes, is what they called it. But really, it was for the people that were slow readers. I was not a slow reader, though. I was the type of kid that would be sitting there with his ADHD, tapping his foot like. Man, he's stuck on this letter. Can we? I'm already on four pages ahead. Like we all started at the same time. Why aren't we? And I was always fast paced, but I kept my mouth shut. But when it came to just when we decided to branch off, and the teacher was like, "Why don't you go pick your books out? Pick whatever you want to read, and maybe that'll and that'll get you going, and see whatever pace you can work off by yourself. We'll do a collective learning thing at the end." So I went to the library. I'm looking at all like the books. I'm like, well, my brother read Harry Potter. Maybe I should read Harry Potter. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, I don't want to read that. I've seen the movies. There's no point. So then I went over to this small section in the library. And I've talked about this part at my school before. I will go back at this age now and take those books if they still have them. Because what they did was they used comic book drawings and taught stories. And when I mean stories from folklore, from like mythology, from the Aztecs to Greek mythology with Hades and Persephone, with Zeus and the Olympians. And this is where my initial inspiration with Greek mythology first branched off. Like I'm reading this thing where I think for anybody that reads a book, like I'm a very good reader when it comes to at a young age, I could read books that were on a 12th grade reading level way past when I was like supposed to be in like third grade. And my mom's like, he understands what he's reading, but I don't think he understands what the words actually mean. And she first initially thought that when I actually brought my dad a book while they were sitting down watching, I think it was like The Matrix or something. I was like, hey, I'm reading this book on Mike Myers, and I'm not talking about the killer. I'm talking about the comedian, Mike Myers. Well, throughout Mike Myers' life, he was in severe drug addiction. He was in a lot of different things, a lot of words a kid should not be knowing about. So I would go up and I'm like, I can read this book, but what does it mean? Like, like, what does this mean? They're like, all right, read it to me. I would read it to him like, well, he was addicted to cocaine after he got into a bar brawl or something like that. And I said something that was so graphic. My dad was like, holy shit. Well, let me see that book and grabbed it. And he looks at it. He goes, your school carries this for you guys? Like, you guys are in like fourth, fifth grade right now. Like, you should not be reading this book. And I'm like, what do those words mean? Why can't I say those words? But I understand what they mean on like a reading comprehension level. So eventually um, my teacher was like, well, apparently you can't pick your own book out. So what do you want to learn about? I'm like, I want to learn about something when it comes to history. And this is where books really take you away because books where people use video games and use all these types of things to try and escape from reality, books do the same. I mean, when I went to college and I started taking a lot of literature classes, I started noticing things that. If I took the time to actually understand what I was reading instead of worrying about doing something later, I actually found myself getting wrapped up. And next thing I know, hours would pass, mostly like uh, looking up Robert Hayden Frost, um, those winter Sundays brought me to a place in my life where I remember it was cold outside, looking out the window and seeing the cracks of the glass was really something I could imagine when I was able to read it, especially with having a greater fondness for books that I do today. You're, you and I are very similar as far as what you're describing. And I think people often um, assume because I'm a librarian that I didn't have a background like that where it, it, I had some tough you know, work learning how to read and have reading comprehension and that books didn't come naturally. I, I didn't love books necessarily until I was much older. For me, I think the Roald Dahl books, Charlie the Chocolate Factory, 
James and the Giant Peach. I loved them because they were kind of subversive and they kind of told kids, you know, think for yourself, don't necessarily listen to adults. And I really loved that. And um, those books, you know, got me interested in reading because still, you know, back then there wasn't so much to choose from. Um, I think after the movie Star Wars came out, which was really huge to me, like growing up, I, I was really, you know, a huge Star Wars fan at the time. It, it always happened, but I think after that, they started seeing, you know, maybe science fiction might be more marketable, and they started releasing a lot of science fiction, and that was great for me because I really love science fiction. I was able to escape, you know, when you know when you're going through stuff like your parents are divorcing, you know, you're not doing well in school, you need kind of an escape sometimes. And science fiction and fantasy for me were like really good for getting away from some of that stuff, you know, when you're at home. Plus, you probably notice it, too, when you're at a library and you see a kid stumble across a book when their eyes light up when it gets something that they're truly interested in. Oh, yeah. Now, for most people, I say you never have to learn the fucking Dewey Decimal System. That was a waste of my time. But for you, it's a, a whole nother scenario. You kind of did have to learn that one. But when it comes to, first of all, watching someone, like I'll go to my library today and I'll – it's the whole environment. It's usually just they got three computers in there, so it's like – any kid that's in college wants to use this computer or any old person that wants to figure out that AOL is not a thing anymore, come over here and we'll teach you at, uh, what, what the world's working with. But walking in there, too, from magazines, from like science books, from anatomy books, like I got really into fitness around seven years ago, and I picked up a bunch of fitness books. And I'm not talking about like, oh, these are the workouts to do this. I did grab those, but I started getting really into anatomy. I was like, oh, my God, like the skeletal system, everything. And I was like, holy shit, like this is what is causing this pain. This is how to get this muscle bigger. This is how to get here, 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 and there. Books throughout history have been so influential in just tracking where our history came from and also teaching us so many wonderful things from a variety of different cultures and also all these topics that, you know, the internet kind of shortens it down too, but there's no better feeling, though, than actually grabbing a book and, first of all, being able to read it, too, because some person can type up an easy article and give it to you when you just look up, like, what 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 are insects? And the next thing you know, you get a whole thing of what are insects. But a book clearly defines and labels it all out and follows a guided line process that is literally comprehended for you to understand it, where an article is just someone just spouting off a bunch of information. Yeah. I You know, the one thing, too— I work in a um, university library, and the books don't always get used as much as I'd like. In fact, they're not used as much as I'd like. And one of the things I often see, especially after, after, during the graduation process and after, when the students are they're not as busy as they were before, and they walk through the stacks and they're like, holy crap, I could have used this in my dissertation. I could use this in my studies. And they're not really walking through as much because they're spending all their time on the computer. And oftentimes... Going through the stacks has the wow effect because when you're searching in a Boolean search on, on Google, it's telling you what it's giving you the information you want to see. It's not giving you like, like, it's not saying, Hey, I know you're looking for this, but have you thought of this? You don't have that. So when you're walking through the stacks in a library, you might see something you weren't necessarily looking for, but you want, you didn't know you wanted. Like with you, it's the health books, you know, and the books on you know anatomy, you may not have necessarily known that you wanted them. So there, there's that, and it kind of pops up as a random factor. And that's something that's really important in libraries is that there's a random factor that people may not have been expecting something. I, I had some guys come into a library that were kind of like challenging me 
to find something they'd be interested in. And I'm like, well, you know, what do you guys like? And they go, well, we like cars. And they're like, they're thinking immediately, well, you don't have anything on cars. Well, we did have a lot of a lot of really good stuff on cars. But I'm like, hey, did you know this library just happens to have Chilton manuals going back to the 70s? And I'm like, what? I took them to the Chilton manual area, and there's like millions of Chilton manuals on different types of fakes and models of car going back, you know, 30, 40 years. And they were like immediately interested. They'd forgotten about me. They're like going into the Chilton manuals. So it's kind of fun to have that random factor when you're kind of helping people find materials they don't they don't know that are there. Yeah, I mean, what what do you get in your uh, library? Probably a mainly a dominant audience of like um, elderly people mixing with a few younger kids getting in there. Like your parents come in and sign you up for a library card. Then you get the occasional like maybe college student or someone around that age that's just looking to expand their horizons a little bit too. It's a wonderful environment. First of all, everybody looks at the library like as this like taboo type learning scenario thing. I'm like, the, the whole everything they got fish tanks they got so much stuff depending on where you're at and it's like it's a whole environment that's literally set up for you to actually read something when you take a book home a lot of people are at home readers you have to set yourself up too you know if you're a mom and you're trying to read a couple books and you got a bunch of little kids running around the house that gets a little bit difficult but if you're set into a library in a whole scenario where it's literally set up to everything to be quiet everything to be able for you to focus, especially with a person like me that has ADHD and is all over the place. This gives us a whole new outlet for just being able to find peace and understand what we're reading in the first place. I think, I think it's very, very beneficial that people at a young age go through the library and do the best thing possible, which is find what you want to read. What are you interested in? What are you doing this? What are you doing that? Instead of being forced to do the basic stuff where you're like, we're going to read this book. And then when we get done with it, we're going to read this one and read this one. That's okay for a classroom scenario, but it doesn't really broaden a person's, I guess, horizons when it comes to just self-education and reading as well. When I go to the library and I pick out a book, half the time I'm reading the book, I'm like, why the fuck was this not in my school? Why was this not shown to me? That, that reading is fun. Reading is, you know, I, I'm tired of the damn song where it's like, reading is fun. You're not cool unless you have a library card. I looked at that. I was like, why? Everything that I read sucks. And then I find out when I'm older, oh, it actually is cool. It's just the fact is you got to actually have the ability and first of all, be alone to go experience what the actual reading knowledge and anything from the Dewey Decimal System can teach you. The one big change I've seen, um, I mean, Libraries have been evolving for a long time, and I think a lot of people still have a misconception that they're just a place, with a, a dark place with a bunch of bookshelves and tables and stuff like that. And they've been really, you know, really hugely changing libraries because of Google and computers in general. People are not necessarily always coming to library means for information anymore. They're usually getting it on their own, which is fine. But um, libraries have had to evolve, so. We're not just repositories of books anymore. We're often places where we have computer labs, we have children's programs, we have young adult programs, we have adult programs, we have senior programs. We're, we're actually taking on more of an onus of a um, community center. Uh, for example, uh, one, I wish I could uh, take you like on a walking tour with this interview of the Hayward Public Library that I just recently went on a tour of. And the Hayward Public Library, um, they got the funding to create a new library, and they took off running with it. It's this place, when you walk into it, your first knowledge, your first impression is, holy crap, 
because it just blows your mind and you can't even take it all in because when you walk in it's not just you know a place with books in it it's it's like an entire community center and the first floor is devoted to kids and it's like something out of dr seuss it's amazing the architecture is off the hook then there is like a children's theater where they do readings to the kids that's made for this specific purpose and it looks like something out of willy wonka and then you go upstairs you have a teen area and they have stem labs where they're doing uh, making stuff like 3d printing they're doing um all kinds of stuff they have after school homework programs they have invested tutors coming in and, and teaching the kids and helping them with their homework you know where it was sometimes like you know with me i was a working parent i was working in the evenings i couldn't help my son with my his homework so he would go to the library and get help and this is a program like that and they have areas where the kids can just hang out and be themselves and not have to worry about somebody breathing down their neck or shushing them. And then the adult area with like outdoor areas where you can read, fireplaces, you know, places where you can relax, computer centers, science centers. I mean, it's the places like Disneyland for me. And then they have art hanging all the wall that they change monthly. And they have a farmer's market come there once or twice a week. And they have like, bike rodeos or people can come see people do tricks on bikes and have instruction on how to fix their bikes and they have all kinds of like martial art expos that come in they do demonstrations there and actors can play amazing we have this view on libraries that it's like this abandoned warehouse where just people that you know are elderly go or you know, books go to die because just to the fact with how adaptive we became as a society to live off our devices I do like technology. I love it a lot, but it is a pain in the ass at times. Okay. When I go into the library, if I go into any store, first of all, my phone is going in my car, um, mostly because I don't need it in my pocket. But I remember I went into the library and it's, it's an environment where it's one of the last old kind of breed things where you never want to have technology in your pocket at the time. You have the resources with the computer when it comes to looking up a book and all these types of things that are there for you. Very beneficial too, if you don't have internet at home, you can just go to the library, type up a research paper. But it's, it's, a, lost, it's a lost art, man. That's really what it is. Libraries, reading in general is becoming a lost art. Like we saw Barnes and Noble get taken down just because of Amazon and all these places where people are like, oh, you can get it on your phone now. You don't have to go to a bookstore anymore to go to a book. I'm like, but that was the funnest thing too, was actually going to the store because it puts you in the mindset of, first of all, I don't think anybody nowadays is really going to remember what it's like to, first of all, have a your own, um, what is it, the, your, your bookmark. You know what I mean? That's, that's, that's not going to become a thing anymore uh, just because you can't put a bookmark in your phone. You can leave like a note or something and bring it back to your place. But when it comes to – I walked into my library the other day, like you were saying before, about with kids, uh, first of all, learning programs and stuff too. They're – there were readings going on that they were teaching them how to read Dr. Seuss. They were speaking it out to the class. And I immediately got thrown back to when I was in first grade and they started focusing on that. But when I go to my school, it's not even like that anymore. The kids are, have so much use to like, Oh, he's going to put it on his headphones and he's going to do that. I'm like, well, what happened to like, we're all sitting in a circle and you're reading the hungry caterpillar and all this type of stuff. Oh, we don't do that anymore. We adapted to a new way of teaching. We find that for everyone should be a learner. And then it, like, but we all understand differently. Some people like to be read to us. You know, a lot of people aren't very good at reading and it's not to discriminate anybody that is a good reader or a bad reader. 
I have the most patience as possible because I was thrown into classes where I was 10 pages ahead of everybody. I was always getting done first. Like, Robbie, did you read chapter three yet? I read chapter three, four, five, six. I'm already on chapter seven. I'm right. So I'll take that home. You know, like, like, oh, do you just think you're better? I'm like, I don't. But we have different paces that we read at and we have different levels of understanding that we understand whatever information at process it differently. But when I walked into this library, saw these activities and this really old way of teaching everyone like, hey, this is how we can make learning fun. It was one of the most uh, heartwarming moments, I want to say. I don't want to sound like just like a uh, like, like just crazy for saying that. But just looking at that, I'm like, oh, OK, this is something that is not going to end. This is something that's not going to get turned into a phone or a screen. And yeah, I'll be with the group of people that are like, yeah, I'd rather have a tablet in my book bag than carrying around 50,000 textbooks. But when it's a book that is something you want to learn and you want to know more about, you don't care how heavy it weighs. Yeah, I, I, um, I've been finding like that. It's nice to see people come in and that haven't been to the library for a while and see that their perception of things has changed a little bit. And I think one of the most important things I always want people to know about the librarians is that you know, I think the main thing, like people, I think we just like books and we want to read and stuff. And I think there's a, misconception that we, we're just reading at work but a lot of us you know we work really hard it's a hard job and the thing is though we love it i mean it's you know i think there's some i remember there's some slogan from years ago where they're saying it's the hardest job you'll ever love and i think that that's what it's like being a librarian and there's many different types of librarians the public librarians especially have a very challenging go it's being it's becoming an increasingly dangerous uh, job. I, last year, we had in two different cities, we had library directors killed in the parking lots when they're going to their cars because, uh, you know, we have a larger amount of mentally ill people coming into libraries and using the libraries, which is, you know, was something we still welcome, but it is becoming, you know, there's been violence in libraries against librarians because, you know, pe people, there's more people using the libraries and sometimes, you know, they're, they're, they have issues. Well, it's open, it's open to the public. That's one of the, that's, a, that's really bad about um, what's coming with retail jobs in general. I'm not saying libraries are retail places, but just anywhere that's dealing with the public, we're seeing a large traumatic increase of just people with severe mental kind of disabilities and injuries in a way when it comes to just anxiety, depression, aggression is definitely heating up a lot more and more people are not understanding how to communicate. That makes it very, very difficult because the weirdest thing about a librarian is it doesn't matter if you're super huge, but immediately when you hear, oh, you're a librarian, you get this calm factor about you because it seems like, oh, well, this person is not like a, 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 like a mean person. This person is going to be act towards aggression. Librarians are seen as peacekeepers a little bit. They're seen as like, shh, you know, that whole like quiet, that whole aspect of it. And we associate quiet and kind of that job in general with people that are easily pushed over or not likely to say anything. And it really does you guys a disservice as well because you guys are meant to be helpful learners. You're meant to teach people like, hey, here's this. You know, you can get interested in this. You're supposed to help somebody find their need. And that only makes it more dangerous on you when the library is so open and public and we're seeing acts of aggression strike out. You're going to start fearing for your safety when you start telling someone, hey, you have to be quiet. And the person says, what the fuck did you just say to me? And starts coming at you. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa I'm, not a, I'm not a fighter. That's why I'm at a library. Like, I'm not here to... You know, I like books because books don't yell back. You know what I mean? It's it's a whole escape factor. It's I mean, it's funny because we've had to adapt and learn. And 
oftentimes when you work in public libraries, even in, in school libraries, you have to take classes on dealing with, with uh, the mentally ill, with the homeless, and, you know, in learning basically to think in ways that, like, the homeless think and mentally ill think. Like, for instance, you may get trained to, like, it's closing time and you want to let people know and somebody's sleeping in a chair. Well, you're not going to want to walk up and, like, shake them. You're going to want to, like, from a distance say, excuse me, we're, you know, we're closing and let them know. And that little bit of information and that kind of training is really integral because you could have issues, you know, where you could get injured. And I think also, too, there's other issues. There's many issues with the larger attendance and different, different, more diversity in the population in the libraries. We've had to, like, constantly, re I think there's no, like, complacency ever in libraries. If you work in a library, you're constantly every year getting new training, new learning, and you're, you're adapting yourself. And I I, it's funny, I don't, I don't want to sound trite, but like when I look at a job like children's librarians specifically, they're like the biggest badasses in libraries. They work their asses off like a Marine. They go in there, they maybe like subsist off of like half of a cup of cold Starbucks every day. They're going from program to program, breaking down rooms, putting them back up. They're like, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're working with lots of kids, which can be exhausting. You know, I, I have lots of kids at home. I don't want to go work with kids during the day all day. It, 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 it was, I mean, all, all my energy hours. Most librarians are collecting books. You're collecting kids over there with six of them. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's definitely, I definitely supersize. And then so, like, you know, these, these children's librarians, they're, they're perceived as being, like, flimsy or weak and innocent. Man, those, and no, they're, they're like, hard individuals there you don't mess with the children's librarians man <laughs> they got the patience of a saint man you want to talk about anybody first of all they're practically babysitters their parents are like oh, i'm gonna drop them off at the program but that you brought up something interesting with that too where do you think that the complications are going to increase just in the libraries in general just with the fact of how open it is and a lot of people now are tending not to have patience towards others yeah i think so and it's something we're constantly um, adapting to and learning and, and changing with because, you know, we all love our jobs and we don't want to leave the job and it, it's become more difficult, but it's something we, we like, our attitude is like, all right, this is changing. We're going to change too. We're going to adapt and we're going to have to go with it. How do you adapt to somebody coming in and just snapping on somebody? What sucks is libraries don't have security. Most of them don't, at least public libraries, like in your town or something, probably don't have a security guard or police officer nearby. And you brought up a good point because where a lot of cops sit in my area are is right in the library parking lot, where I don't think a lot of our library gets kind of like a lot of conflict. Plus, everybody's kind of elderly and nuts. So mostly you're just seeing somebody freak out like, what the hell is, what, what's Gmail? I'm like, oh my dude, you need some help, man? Like you want to print something out? I can help you out there. But they're like, I don't understand. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm trying to Skype my, uh, my uh, nephew. I mean, whatever. All right, man. I'm just trying to help you. Sorry for, I guess, creating a problem. But, you know, when it becomes open source of information, too, I don't think a lot of people understand the full capabilities of that. But, like, how do you guys trying to adapt with just the struggle of dealing with that amount of population as well, especially when it comes to just people being aggressive? We take classes on, we, I mean, we have like professionals come in that, that deal with that specialty and they talk to us and how to, how to manage conflict and how to talk to people. And sometimes it could be something just as simple as how you talk to people. Because I've learned a lot, like, you know, I come from like a background where I've had a lot of blue collar jobs. I've worked in all kinds of different services and I was very abrupt 
and kind of like I've talked to people in a way that always wasn't user friendly for them. And I've got training where they'd be like, no, 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 you can't just like get in somebody's face and say, you know, tell them what's what. You got to like be more patient and more like asking questions and like trying to get them to come to your point of view, but in a more, more peaceful and non combative way. Because sometimes culturally, if you just like come up to somebody and be like, oh, our clothes needed to get out, they're going to be like, combative instantly so you got to kind of figure out what their mindset is and try and like meet them on their level so that they're not going to like immediately see you as an enemy but they're going to see you as an ally it's difficult it's challenging and sometimes it takes a long time to get into that and some people are better at it than others but um you know it's i think really worthwhile to learn and also it helps you holistically not just in your job but in other aspects of your life as well too what would you say your hopes for just being open source of information with libraries in general. Do you think that this is going to be a thing that's going to be around much longer? It seems like less and less people are going there. Back in the day, it was, at least for me, was like an experience of riding my bike there, picking out a book and finding, you know, something I could connect to on like a, first of all, a comprehensive level, whether it was just doing my own research or reading Diary of a Wimpy Kid or something where I was like, oh, this is like, this is cool. This kind of places the scenario that I'm in or, you know, the scene having an older brother just kind of relating to me a little bit too. But I, I feel like just with the way we're going with technology, more people are more likely just to never leave the house and have that information on their computer or on their phone rather than going out to a bookstore or anywhere like that and buy it and actually hold it in their hands. I think that I'll give you a two part answer on that one. On one level, um, to address exactly what you're saying is, is we're thinking about that and we're, we're thinking about things like bringing the books out to communities uh, and the research not just books I, you know also i have to mention you know for a lot of people they're still they're still checking out dvds especially families with kids are checking out dvds not everybody can afford um sometimes we're checking out hotspots so people can have wire net internet mm -hmm. access we're checking out all kinds of things so um for me I think that like we're learning to adapt and figure out how we can come out to the people. And another way we can, we're helping the public more is our library websites are more intuitive and they're easier to use now than they used to be. We're learning to adapt and create websites where people can like go on and log on and chat with the library and ask the questions they need instead of having to come all the way into the library. Or they have, you know, audiobooks, ebooks online, better selections, more of them. So they, they don't even have to come in if they don't want to or if they, they can't. And then um, that way, you know, they can still access the library resources, but they can do it from the safety of their home. And uh, I think that's something that we're increasingly doing. I think the other thing is, you know, we're seeing in a lot of uh, community libraries really much larger stacks for usage. I remember I was working um, briefly. At, I, I was at the Fremont Library on a Sunday in Fremont, California, and it was uh, it was so packed full of people. I was walking out of the main gate to go out to the front door, and the influx of people was like something when you're going to a rock concert. You were just like crushed in the press, press of bodies. And it was wonderful to me because so many families, like I guess they've gotten out of church or they come out, you know, from afternoon dinner or whatever, and they were all coming, the whole family was coming to the library. They were all happy to be there. Everybody was stoked, everybody was in a good mood. And the place was just packed to the rafters. And I was just like, this is amazing. I've never seen anything like this. And I love this so much. I, I, I can tell you with 
libraries in general, a lot of people don't understand. There are movies there too. Okay, it's 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 basically it's Redbox. That's what it is. And there, <laughs> I didn't know that until I'm like looking through the library. I'm like, oh shit, they got movies here, and they got classics too, man. Like if you go to a thrift store, you'll come across some finds. But with libraries in general, now it kind of branches off into what I was going to ask you too. Just with understanding and describing, and first of all, reading a lot more about books and being surrounded by them a lot more, especially having a fascination with reading like yourself, a lot of these start to spark an interest when it comes to another form, which is more on the writing aspect of things. And you also write on, in your own time as well. Yeah, I do a lot of, I've been doing increasingly more writing in the last couple of years. Uh, this year, I made a goal to write at least one article professionally a week, and then last year, I did over 100 articles. I'm writing about a lot of different things. I'm interviewing authors. I'm writing about food. But mainly, I'm interviewing. Uh, my main thrust is like talking to people about, you know, writing and, and uh, talking to authors. What types of things are we talking about when you mean you're writing about just people, just kind of expanding people's minds on writing in general? Like what types of things do you try and show them or try and tell them or bring into the realization that this is a wonderful hobby that shouldn't be turned into typing, shouldn't be turned into a lost art. I remember reading Stephen King's book on writing, and he talked about how he almost scrapped it. He took, he, he was full of a lot of self-doubt. He didn't believe in himself. And his wife, um, Tabitha, believed in him. And he took Christine, his first novel. He balled it up and threw it in the trash. She pulled it out of the trash, straightened it out. She said, she told him in no uncertain terms, you will get this published and finish it. And he got it finished and it changed his life. And, you know, that sounds like a cute anecdote, but I think, I think that's really something that's the crux of it for everybody. I think if you want to write and if you want to be a writer, you just have to do it. And if you have difficulty with it, you get through it like anything else. Like, you know, when you work out or start working out, like if I'm, I'm in horrible shape and if I started working out tomorrow, I, if I went to the gym, I, I wouldn't have a good time, I think, first day. I think it would take me a year, to, you know, maybe two years or more of, of daily working out, stretching to get to a place where I was better. But I would have bad days where I'd be like, screw this. Why would I want to do this? And I think writing is no different. I think writing is exactly like it. I'm a fitness freak. I've been going every day for seven years. And I can tell you one thing. I have my days where I wake up and I'm like, oh, I don't want to fucking go. But I force myself to do it too, much like a lot of writers and stuff. They get writer's block. And the way they pursue past it is by forcing themselves to sit down, get them into that environment, and put pen to paper, put pencil to paper. The way we choose to express ourselves. There are many different forms, whatever hobby you're interested in, whether it's workshop, whether it's making a movie, whether it's singing, whether it's whatever. The most valuable information I got from was from my uncle who is a broadcaster who is he does the baseball games like well we got number three coming up and doing and he does that voice and i was like so where did this come from like he was on my podcast i was like so where did it come from is your dad a broadcaster and he's like no my dad's actually an all-time published author and i was like whoa okay are we talking about new york times bestseller or what And he's like no he's like my dad has written a bunch of books that's gotten them published because the way he expresses himself, like he can't communicate vocally with his words, but the, when he puts his pencil to paper, I've read things that my dad has written where I never thought he would ever think that way. He could communicate his emotions when he did that. And that's where I see it as an amazing true form of art because 
it's all about expression. Whatever book you want to write, whatever you want to do this, you know, this is why there's people like ghostwriters that will write something for someone because a lot of people aren't good at expressing themselves on their own. So they're like, I want to pay someone to be able to do this. I thought you were just writing about ghosts. No, it actually means someone wrote the book for you. But like books expand your knowledge and it's one of the oldest forms of teaching. And the way that it's still being brought today is you're seeing a lot with motivational book writers, a lot of people that are writing books like I was in this place is the best way I can convey to you. You know, I've talked to so many writers. What do you find is the key features to just writing in general? Would you say it's about, like you were saying before, writing and not really giving a shit if someone's going to like it or not, but more like doing it for yourself where you get the enjoyment out of it. You'll find that you're more creative and original, which people are going to love. I think that the one important thing for me specifically is I, I'm a, I like to talk and I'm a storyteller. And I find oftentimes I will tell stories and my family's like, you already told us this story five times. And so I like to get a lot of the stuff I want to say out in writing because um, I don't want to keep boring my family with the same stories. And I have something to say, even if it's maybe not interesting to everybody, I feel like it's interesting to me. And I look at some of the writers that I really love, and I, I think that they didn't necessarily have a common voice always or something that was not appealing to everybody, but it was their voice, and it's what they wanted to say, and they needed to say it. It's like William S. Burroughs, I mean, he definitely wasn't a typical guy. He wrote, you know, Junkie and uh, Naked Lunch, and he wrote a lot of stuff that, you know, was very controversial at the time. He wrote about, you know, a lot of things that were not user-friendly. He did a cut-up method where he would write stories and cut them up and, like, publish them out of order, and that wasn't considered... You know, very commonplace back then. That was during the 50s when, you know, everything had to be status quo. So, and you look at people like H.P. Lovecraft, who's like one of my favorite authors who I collect his works, and he didn't have a popular voice at the time period. And his work wasn't really popular till after he died, but he wrote what he wanted to write on his own terms, and it was his voice. He had to get it out there. And I think there are people who they have stories they need to get out because nobody's listening or they don't have a family or friends they can talk to and I think it's liberating for people to get their voice out and kind of express themselves on their terms well you're seeing that get changed too the fact that like publications and all these things they're starting to go through books like can't have this in there can't have that in there I mean do you think that's creating a problem also as well with um, just like this culture that we're living in where it seems like a lot of people are getting sensitive over a lot of things I started noticing like back in the throughout history, there have been certain cases or scenarios where books have been burned or books have been taken off the shelves because of the rights or something that have affected another person. But I feel like where this world is becoming where people are getting kind of very, very hurt by a lot of things that people are saying, mostly because it's the blog form, it's the writing form, it's like the comments that you get on YouTube, that type of form. That does the books a disservice because so many authors nowadays have to watch when they say certain words now because it might offend somebody. I'm like, but there is a time and a place. If you're writing a biography, if you're writing something and that word is said that is not used today, then you should be able to include it. That should be important history in there because that's exactly what that went through. Do you know what it's like to blend a word just for a more adaptive times when it actually meant a lot more to the story to have that certain word in there? I, I'm a, I really am a very huge advocate for freedom of speech and non-censorship. And I mean that for all peoples, no matter what 
your writing. And I have seen throughout my life the impact of popular culture saying this is not right or that is not right. And it's important that we look at the fact that censorship can be in many forms. And, it, and it's not, we always used to, I think, see it on the right as conservative people or religious people wanting to censor something. But I think now what we're seeing people on, on the left as well who are guilty, I think, of censorship by their saying, this has some language and I don't like, or I don't like the way this character is portrayed, so we're gonna like ban the book, whatever that means. Um, and I, I don't like it. I, I, don't, I don't approve it. I would never want a book pulled from a library or a bookstore because somebody didn't like it. I think that I've always believed that no matter how controversial something is or how much somebody might like it, I do believe it still needs to be out there. And as a librarian, I'm very much in favor of you know keeping it on the shelf despite people's dislike of it because I think we need to have everything out there. And it's one thing that librarians fight out, fight over quite a bit. For instance, I think remember when um, in bookstores and in libraries, uh, the anarchist cookbook was uh, you know very controversial because people like to teach you how to make bombs. You shouldn't have it in bookstores. And I was working at Walton Books at the time, and they were like, "We can't sell this." And I'm like, "Well, you know, we can't just say you know who can we can't cherry pick what people can sell, buy and sell as far as books go." And while we appreciate the idea and and the issue. We can't tell people, no, you can't buy this because it might have something in it that's dangerous. Look, they have a book called Fire Fireworks for Dummies. So if anybody's going to blow their fingers off, there's that option out there to blow your fingers off. Exactly. And like books like the Satanic Bible. I mean, if you have that in a library or books are people like, you shouldn't have that. It's like, well, who's to say? Whose perspective are we going with? I mean, not everybody has the same perspective. Exactly. Like if – First of all, if hotels can carry the Holy Bible in every single room, then there shouldn't be a restriction on a library carrying a certain piece of religious literature. Right. And, I, and I'm really for, I believe that everything should be permitted as far as, you know, I think if you don't want your kids, you know, to read certain books, you should say, I, I really don't want you reading that. doesn't mean they're not going to read it, but, you know, you get that sentiment across. But you can't force other institutions to have your same values and viewpoint. And, and restrict that to your kids or, or your teens because you don't want it. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to put stuff that's obscene and uh, dangerous, you know, where kids can get it necessarily. But, you know, ultimately, you know, you, we will have people will have access to everything they need if they want it. Now, what typical things do you like to read or do you have a fondness over that you try do incorporate it a little bit into your writing as well? It seems like if you, you know, you said you enjoyed sci-fi and all these types of things. Does that mean you like writing sci-fi literature? Do you like writing your own kind of stories around that concept? I find that I love Greek mythology. If I'm going to write something, it usually does the basis around Greek mythology or just stuff from that time or folklore. I read a lot of horror um, and I don't. I, I have a lot of unpublished horror that I'm working on. I'm, I've been most, the stuff that I've been publishing is mostly interviews and books on food and cooking. But at a certain point, when I'm more comfortable with my writing, I really want to release my short stories that are horror related. Usually it's cosmic horror, uh, very Lovecraftian nature, um, elder gods and stuff like that. Um, a lot of like stuff that kind of messes with your mind and challenges your perceptions of reality. Uh, there's a few authors that I love, uh, Thomas Ligotti and Laird Barron, and their stuff I think is exceptional right now, um, although it's not always easy to find, and uh, their stuff blows my mind and actually kind of uh, scares me a little bit. And I love Stephen King, of course, and uh, his son, um, Joe Hill, uh, two horror novel novelists that I really enjoy. So I like to read all kinds of horror. That's my favorite genre. 
inspires to say I have one. It's funny you say Stephen King because I have a lot of Stephen King's book in my own little personal library. I do have the personal library as a bit of a flex when people walk in. They're like, you read? I'm like, yeah, I fucking read. You see these books all over my wall that I really have never opened up. But I found it kind of interesting and fun when my gym owner was like, hey, she had someone that recently passed away that was close to her. And she was like, there's a bunch of this stuff in this storage locker. If you just want to pull some stuff out there, I know there's a printer in there. You're in college. You might as well use it. I'm like, okay. Um, and then she goes, and there's just a bunch of books off. To, I'm like, hold on a second. You said books, right? Books, books. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I open it up, um, storage locker. I'm going through it. And I start seeing a bunch of old school Stephen King books. I'm seeing a bunch of, you know, like Spock, doc, like the interview or biography about Spock, um, the book he wrote. Um, so many different books. And I started, I, there was this one author, I really wish I could remember his name, but I started reading a lot of his stuff. And then I found out that she actually sent him letters, multiple letters about books that he had published. And he sent a bunch back saying like, oh, thank you. Here's a rough draft of this. So I started pulling through all these documents and these really brown stained pieces of paper under these books. And I'm looking and reading and I'm seeing, holy crap, like, this guy was sending her a lot of his lost work, like a lot of his stuff that were just ideas and coming to her as a reference, being a fan, found that he could find, you know, something that she might be interested in and also an idea for a book as well, where she actually has um, in that storage locker, there was a plaque and the plaque had a photo of the book that they both technically combined and wrote. You know, like oh he was posting her ideas. And I was like, did you know this was in there? And my gym owner, her name's Bonnie, was like, no, I had no idea. I, 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 she was she was in her 60s. She was kind of crazy. She was always like sending things off. And we just we just never took the time to listen to her. I was like, she was working with an author, like one of her favorite ones too. like reached out to him. Like when we say celebrities are just people. Like she reached out to this guy, then they got feedback, and then they both technically co-wrote a book together. Like, there, did you, did you see the book that they wrote? So I ended up. This is about probably six, seven months ago when this all was all going down. So I actually looked up what he titled the publication and ordered that book, and then I gave it to my owner of my gym. Is like, oh, this is apparently the book that she helped write. And she came back to me, like, I think it was like a few weeks later and was like, did you know that he mentioned her in the book? And I was like, what? And the person that she lost was her husband's daughter. So he was like, thank you for that, because now that's like closure for him as well. Like he has that hanging, that piece that's dedicated to her in the book. And I really want to remember what this thing was, but that was so inspiring to me, too. Like there is no better feeling in the world than having. I guess, I mean, there's probably a lot, I guess a lot of people would defer, but when it comes to just reading something that you're interested in and watching how far you can take that as well, there's no charges, there's no additional add-ons, any of that shit like, oh, once you get past this page, you got to pay $2.99 to get on to chapter four and download it in there. There's none of that shit. It's straight up, you bought the book, you got the book, there you go. And um, like we're talking about expanding our own knowledge, like you reading probably a lot more sci-fi, come across a lot of inspiration for your books as well. And also just getting a little bit more diverse into that culture where I started finding that my own vocabulary started expanding out was one of the things my dad did at a young age. He was like, damn it, Robbie, you got F's again. And I'm like, yeah, I don't care about school. He's like, all right, you know what you're going to do? Apparently your teacher says 
you don't uh, know how to do apostrophes and all this stuff and type of your writing. So what you're going to do is here's the dictionary. Drops it on the table, puts down a notepad beside it. He goes, every night you're going to do three pages on each one, and you're going to write it down, the whole definition, everything. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, do you know what I'm missing? I'm missing playing video games right now. He's like, dude, do it. And I'm like, say, 10, 11. So I'm sitting there writing giant-ass words. I have no idea. I'm just like, all right, all right here we go. And I started noticing that after a while of this, like a lot of my vocabulary and types of expansive just words in general that make me sound pretty smart, but really not, um, all came from that because I learned so much. I soaked up so much of that information that I actually went to my library and they do a section called free books. And I'm like, holy shit, free books. What's over here? You'll see like the Weight Watchers or you'll see an occasional magazine where it's like, all right, I don't need to see this shit. Next thing you know, you come across something that's like I, I come across a Harry Potter and then I see a Webster's dictionary and I'm like grabbing it. They're like, why do you want a dictionary? I'm like, why do you not want to have an arsenal of words into your vocabulary where I could be like, what are you doing? You boondoggling? And they're like, what the fuck did you just say to me? Do you know what boon? What is boondoggling? What is that? I was like, you don't know what boondoggling is? Boondoggling is means you're supposed to be working, but you're really just dicking around. And I'm like, they're like, why don't you just say we're dicking around? I'm like, because you know how much more impact it has when I say you're boondoggling? Like, that's something where someone's like, oh, like, that's a whole, you really want to, you know, get through cursing in school or something. If you don't want to curse at your teachers, just read the dictionary and you'll be able to pick out a word that they probably don't know where you can just go off and say something. They're like, what are you trying to say? Oh, I'm saying, um, like, you're a good teacher, you know what I mean? You're a good teacher, but really I'm saying, like, you're something else you know what i mean i love um I'll, I'll sometimes hear my kids use a word that i haven't seen in years and it's funny because i'm kind of like where do you get it from and they're like oh this is what's being used commonly and i think that happens people will bring book words back and uh and it, it'll infect the uh society and they'll start using it again and it's so cool to see uh, i think the word was salty they're saying oh you're being salty i'm like Whoa, whoa, wait, I haven't heard that since, like, I've seen writing back, like, in the 50s. My, my grandpa used to say, you're being a salty sailor the way you're acting. And then I'm like, now I hear kids going around saying, yo, don't be salty, man. I'm like, you know, that shit's been around for so long. I remember my cousin, uh, he brought back one that's not too old, but he's in his 30s. So around the time this word came out was word. Whenever someone would message or something, he'd be like, word or something like that. And I'm well, like, I'm old enough to remember when that was coming out. <laughs> Like, holy crap, like, you get to see the vocabulary and the slangs they change it to. Like, do you know what that word originally meant? It's like, no, I, I really don't, but this is what it means now. And it's also like a, it's a, it's like a pause moment for the person that experienced that work when the time, like, when it first came out. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. do you know what that means? You're like, no, no, what does gay mean? The gay means you're happy. It's like, oh, that's, that's not what it means today. It's funny because I played Dungeons and Dragons back when it came out back in the 80s. And uh, a lot of the writing in that had words that I had never heard from before that were historical words. And when I later went to community college uh, in my 20s, I would, I would use a lot of the verbiage from Dungeons and Dragons. And people, my professor would be like, oh, how do you know that? Or where did you hear that from? And I'm like, well, you know, to be honest, I got my Dungeons and Dragons manuals, and, I, and you don't really think of that as being educational stuff, but I, I think that the stuff that was in Dungeons and Dragons was exceedingly educational, and it's funny because it was very controversial at the time, 
I remember our church groups and uh, school groups were telling uh, our parents not to let us play Dungeons and Dragons. It was dangerous and going to corrupt our minds and make us evil and everything. And uh, and you know, and now we don't we we laugh at that. We're like, well, why would that be considered controversial? That's silly. But you know, it was very controversial. I talked to a lot of people that do Dungeons and Dragons podcast because I've never played a game myself, but I'm always fascinated about the game because I'm a big fantasy medieval times type person, especially just like with get my inspiration in Greek mythology in general. I love the old school blades and the, that whole concept behind it. I would LARP if I could, trust me. I've tried. And um, when it comes to Dungeons and Dragons, though, the reason why I got associated that way was the whole satanic thing behind it. They thought you were going to summon the devil just because with all the folklore and the type of ritualistic type things that were involved in the game. More like when we mean ritualistic, it means like you're playing a board game with demons and trolls. That means like, oh, you're playing, you're summoning the devil. I'm like, look, Toys R Us sells a fucking Ouija board. You have to be eight years old at least to summon the devil. So I'm pretty sure we're okay here. We're not conjuring up anything late at night. But it's an inspiration too. Like when you write a book, if you're going to write a really good book, what really makes it too is also the wordplay that gets involved as well. When you use a lot of very sophisticated or very at least words with a lot of gravity, it seems like it makes the book more intelligent in its response as well which it can also be kind of correlated with speeches. Um, I had a speech class. I wrote a 30-minute speech of improv on Hot Pockets just with my capability of all the words and the knowledge I knew behind them and what they meant. I knew I could incorporate a hell of a lot of larger words into a conversation to be able to make it sound good and make it sound to come off correctly. And I literally, I got an F on the Hot Pockets thing because my teacher was like, you did one on Hot Pockets. Like, this was a bullshit idea. I was like, yeah, but everyone loved it and everyone said I should have got an A. And that was because you knew I got you. You knew when I, I sat you in there, I was like, let me talk to you about the complexity behind Hot Pockets. And I'm like going off on this tangent where I'm just incorporating a lot of large words. And people, I mean, it was interesting, but that's a whole nother factor. Like just improving just your knowledge basis, not only on the books you can read, whether it's action, anything that you can turn into a film. When you start learning vocabulary a little bit better, you expand your own horizons on the amount of conversations and openings you're able to throw in stuff where really you can find a lot of key useful resources in just life in general. And it's funny because I, what, uh, going back to William S. Burroughs, he said something that was very interesting. He said that language is a virus from outer space. And I always loved that. I've always, I, throughout my life, it's always been a huge, you know, touchdown with me. But like, you look at authors like uh, Damon Runyon, back in the 20s, he was writing these stories about gangsters. And they would be full of um, lingo and slang that was used, you know, the guys on the streets back in the 20s. And it ended up affecting our vocabulary, and we started using a lot of the language in his books, and to the point of that we, we no longer recognize him as just stuff from his Damon Runyon book, but we, we, we thought of it as his common parlance. You know, when somebody talks about a gun as a piece, or they, uh, or they you know, they, they, you know, talk about, you know, they say no dice. You know, we think of nothing of that now, but like that back then, it was fairly controversial, and he, you know, he introduced a lot of the street lingo to his stories and like i said it just it got to be used in our normal parlance and it became part of our you know, vocabulary and it's funny we you know we, we don't really always think of pop culture informing our viewpoints or the way we talk but like it has a huge impact on the way we talk you know, and what we say 
Now, when it comes to reviewing cookbooks, how did you decide to review cookbooks? My basic idea behind it is from talking to chefs that have written their own is the fact that a lot of them are very, very bland. A lot of them are like directions, like you're reading from like an instruction manual. And for me, I'm not a person that's good with directions. Immediately when I open up something, I'm like, I'll fucking figure it out on my own. And when you're reading a cookbook, it's like add two tablespoons of this, add three tablespoons of that, add a dash of this, mix preheat the oven with that. It's all being told what to do rather than incorporating it into an easy and fun kind of creative way. We, um, I, I reviewed um, last week a book called We Are La Cohina, and it's, um, it's recipes that, are, that um, different women have uh, written down for the uh, book, but it also talks not just about the recipes and what they're cooking, which is food from all around the world, but it talks about there's a um, group of women who have a business incubator in San Francisco called La Cohina, and the thing is, so about San Francisco, um, if you've ever been here, is, is a big city, and it's got a lot of people living in it, and it's really expensive to live in. And if you do live in San Francisco, it's not always the most user-friendly place to live. There's not a lot of stores to buy food. There's not a lot of affordable restaurants if you if you got a family and you're, you know you're a working person. So a lot of a lot of these um, women and uh, business business entrepreneurs who decided just to sell food on the street. They don't have restaurants. They don't have um, you know, places where you can go. Sometimes they might have a truck, but even in some cases, this is going to sound weird to people that aren't, you know, from the, the Bay Area, but like, even sometimes they'll be in an alley, and they'll put down stools, and they'll have like a cart. So um, what's happening is it's becoming, they're, they're creating places where they have like a, a warehouse you can go to that's full of kitchen stuff, and you could cook the food there, and you pay your monthly fee or whatever to, uh, or maybe not if it's like a, you know, an enterprise where they're, they're creating it for free, but the women will go there and they'll, they'll cook the food and they'll go sell it in office buildings. They'll sell it, you know, in alleyways, they'll sell it at home to home and they're providing food to the community that's, that's affordable and it's good food. And it's, it's food that, you know, people may not always have chances to, uh, to get, you know, all the time too. And it's nourishing food and it's made by somebody who, who cares. And, it doesn't cost like 30 bucks, like some of the food in San Francisco. And so it's, that's something that was really exciting to me. And that's, it was just a cookbook, but it had a lot of really good information about, you know, giving people ideas. Like, you know, you might be like, well, I can't open a restaurant, but this is like, well, maybe you can, but maybe you don't have to do it in the same way everybody else is. And maybe you can think off, off the grid and, and do it in a different way. And I really loved that. And then I read, um, I'm trying to remember, there's a few cookbooks I've, read recently that kind of talked about food in different ways to, to kind of give you ideas how to um, create healthy food for your family that they'll actually eat. My kids, um, by and large, do not, if I, if I bring anything to the table that looks healthy, they're immediately suspicious. They're like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And so uh, I often try and try to like kind of mix some healthy stuff up in there that looks kind of interesting and appetizing and doesn't look like it's healthy and that's a big challenge for me too i've also read a lot of books on um, bread recently bread but bread cookbooks by large are not just recipe books they talk about um, the production of bread and how it's made and historically how it's made which can be boring for some people if you're not a breadhead but like i'm kind of fascinated by the whole thing 
Yeah, where you get a lot of information of too is knowing where it came from. I think that's like the whole basis behind just the food industry in general. Like, do you know how that got to your plate? Do you know how that got behind it? Well, let me tell you the process of where it was. You start to be a little bit more health conscious too. Like, oh, so these tomatoes were actually farmed here and you use this and that. When you start to taste it, you start to have a greater kind of, I guess, appreciation for just the food in general, knowing the process behind it. And especially like, when you're reading a cookbook, what makes a lot of cookbooks, um, at least nowadays that are getting kind of made, people are starting to notice that they need to make it into their own design as well and make it unique to them. I think for any information you can really pull out of a book besides any type of genre that's like fantasy or just relies on the creative aspect was the fact of the realness in it as well. When you read a cookbook, you want someone to be like, you can use this, but this tastes better. Um, I've been around kitchens. I've been around this types of things. I've traveled from place to place trying different exotic food stores, any type of things. Anybody that does food reviews and they start to notice like, holy shit, like when someone is straight up giving you information like, yeah, you could go here. They have pretty good stuff, but the process and all of it gets a little bit unrefined. But if you go here, here's a little sideway street that not a lot of people know about. Next thing you know, you start getting a bunch of information that's useful to you where you start to have an appreciation of just the concept in general. I um, really like the Thug Kitchen cookbooks that they put out. And um, those are not just good cookbooks. They're also entertaining and fun to read. And you really get a feeling that they're written in a voice for the normal person. It's not like, you know, Betty Crocker or Rachel Ray. You know, it's like it's not like, oh, we're going to cook this today, blah, blah, blah. They're like, they're like motherfucker, make these empanadas, you know, and you're, and you're yeah. like, and you're enjoying it because it feels like your friends talking to you. I think that's the realest aspect I really like about books in general. Like you probably would agree that like cookbooks, if you are real with it as well, like, yeah, you could use this, but you know, if you're going on like a low budget option and you don't have the option to go get imported spices from overseas across the Caribbean that were handpicked by Italian people, whatever, if you don't have that option, they're like, well, you can use this as a cheaper option. I like that real aspect behind things because it also makes it a, at least it makes it more human. It makes it like less like, oh, I got to travel three states away to grab this exotic food and then bring it back over here and then start cooking. It's like, no, you can also use budget-friendly items that you have in your kitchen. That's why you see a lot of books like Street Kitchen, a lot of books like, you know, um, cookbooks that deal a little bit on like the, the money aspect of things. Like, yeah, if you're a stay-at-home mom, you probably don't have the option of going to you know, the highest, finest, whatever, wine and dine place, pulling out caviar or something like that. Let's use something from your refrigerator. I know there's a bunch of popular books that are like, let's just throw stuff that you have left over in your fridge possibly and see what we can create out of it as well. Because it brings in a, a whole other aspect of things where I would like to do with my podcast where it's like real conversation. Somebody sneezes, somebody coughs. I keep that in there because it also lets you know every second of that conversation. If you edit it up, you do all these types of Hollywooded things, you start to disguise what the actual thing is. It does work in some scenarios, but in my podcast, for sure, it doesn't work. If I edit out something, if I uh, clear up something, besides messing with audio a little bit just to make sure you can hear the person clearly, I try my best not to edit because the whole factor is you lose the realness aspect that I think that you want to sit there and act like, oh, I'm in a conversation with these people. I'm just listening. 
that whole aspect, which really makes it great, which is when you do a cookbook or you're writing something, you have to try your best to reflect your own personal thing. You want to make that a personal thing. You want to act like you're telling person information or reading person information when it comes to that style of book. But you also want to give them an experience that still feels like they're taking a piece of you as well. I, I think the one, jumping off what you said, I think the one person that really kind of changed the whole conversation about food and food writing and, and food journalism was um, Anthony Bourdain. And he was this like punk rock guy that came in who had his kitchen confidential is just the most raw, amazing thing I've ever read. And I've reread it recently after years after he died. And, and I just have been rereading all that stuff. And he just changed everything because he's like a real guy. He's, you know, he's not some like gourmet you know, blah, 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 you know, where he's like talking from like up above. He's like a guy who's on your level and like, he's somebody you can have a beer with or, or five. And, you know, he, he was a real guy. And uh, when he had conversations about food, he traveled all over the world and he would eat food with people from all over, like, you know, in the African bush in Vietnam and like, you know, even, you know, like on the streets of Paris or Italy, he would talk to the common people there. He, I mean, he, he ate with chefs too, but like he would eat with like common people and, you know, he, he did a taco truck and he would talk about how good the food was in the taco truck. There was no like hoity-toity thing with him and he really changed the conversation and I see it like in David Chang's stuff today. He does Ugly Delicious and Breakfast, Lunch, and Dinner. You know, he talks from the same level. You know, he's, he's a guy and he, again, he's somebody you could have a beer with and I like the fact that kind of food has been opened up to be like, it's for everybody now. It's not just for rich people. And I often, I conversely too see that rich people are turning around and, and wanting to like have what the, what, you know, the non-rich people have. And I, and I think that's interesting that, that that was all changed. I think by Anthony, he was kind of like, he was like the sex pistols of food writing. He came out and he was like, this is what I'm doing. I don't care if rats ask you like it or not. And uh, everybody loved him because he was so genuine, you know, and God, I miss him. When he died, it was, it was like, to me, like how people felt like when Jimi Hendrix died or something like that. It was like, are you kidding me? What's going on? He, he was just posting on Instagram, you know? Well, he, he brought in the realist aspect of things too, when it comes to just where nobody's on a different level from somebody else. They might have a little bit more training, a little bit more education, and maybe have a little bit more natural talent when it comes to thing. But you can get yourself up there too by just expanding yourself into that realm and also the knowledge behind it in general. If you start doing it more and more and more, you're going to adapt those skills. You're going to learn how to do it. So nobody was completely left out of the kitchen, I would say, in his opinion. Um, which made it one of the most important factors too. Like a lot of people are like, I'm not a good writer. I don't understand. I can't read very well. How can I write? It's like, if you just take the time to do it and kind of build up the process to it, you're going to find that you're a lot more capable of things than you think. I, I agree with you exactly. And I think that even tying it with Bourdain and stuff and what you just said, I never would have become a librarian if I didn't have some sense of faith in myself that I could do things I needed to do. And one of the things that was really hard for me is that growing up, you know, I was always kind of a misfit and, you know, I, I didn't always do well 
and jobs and stuff. I had a lot of difficulty with writing and like mathematics. And so people flat out told me, like I remember I was I was working for Walden Books, you know, as a sales clerk. And I was talking to one of my coworkers and she was going to library school and I said, well, maybe I wouldn't mind being a librarian. And she laughed at me. She's like, you'll never be a librarian. You could never do it. And I was like, well, bitch, whatever. But like, you know, I kind of kind of got under my skin and I kind of think it knocked me down a little bit. And then later on, I was like, I've always felt like, even though people tell me, like, you're never going to make it or you're never going to do well, I kept being like, you know what? I want to try anyway. I don't care. And I think people like Anthony Bourdain was like always been like kind of gave me the impetus to kind of move forward because he was like, you know, he'd been a drug addict. He had been down in the dumps, you know, and he had had a lot of failure in his life. But he kept he kept saying, you know what, screw this, I'm going to go for it. So I think when I had a chance to go to library school, after I got my um, undergrad done, finally kicking for years as a single parent, it took forever. Um, but when I went to, when I decided to go to grad school, you know, I had people who were like, I don't know, man, I don't know if it's for you. You know, maybe it's not something you could do. And people, I don't think they mean to fill you full of doubt, but I think they have good intentions. I think they, they don't want you to try and fail. But I'm on the opposite tack. I really people try and fail to not do it at all. And I'm like, I may crash and burn at this, but I'd rather crash and burn than, than always wonder what it would have been like to do it. I want to so give went, a shout out. Hold on. I want to give a shout out to two motivational posters that I sat through in school. One was by Yoda that said, do or do not. There is no try. And the second one that says, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Totally agree. And, I, and I'm here to tell you, you know, if people tell you you can't do it, just tell them, screw you. Do it anyway. Because, you know, I, I, I still have imposter syndrome. Sure. I, there are days when I don't feel like much of a librarian, when I have bad days at work. You know, and I feel like a failure, but I pick myself up, dust myself off, and I go back to work the next day, and I try again. And it's not always easy, and, and sometimes it's a real challenge. But uh, you know, with, with learning disabilities, it can be really difficult in a professional in, in a university environment. I feel very thin-skinned here because I'm, I feel like I'm around people that constantly look at me like, "What's this guy doing in a library?" But I, but I think that that's me. I don't think it's necessarily them. Because I've just met people that think I, you know, was born with a book in my hand and I've always been an academic and stuff. And I'm like, no, that's not me. You don't know me. You know, I'm not that guy. I, I grew up in a blue collar environment. I've done farm work. I've worked on, I've done, I, I took sheet metal class and uh, welding in school. I, I, I was never, they were like, this guy might be a janitor, you know, because of my learning disability. They're like, you're never going to be like, you know, go to college. In fact, my teachers were like, you know, College is not for you. You need to find a job that you could do, you know, maybe, you know, doing roofing hey, or something. I'm right there with you, man. The whole reason I even graduated from college and starting to go back to get another degree was the whole aspect. Someone told me I wasn't college material. Now, whether they were doing that just because they knew I have a problem with authority and they were like, oh, this will drive him to go to school. Because immediately when they said that, I was like, fuck you, I'm going to college. And next thing I know, I got my degree and everything. But the best part about like with you in general, too. You didn't let those things stop you. You didn't let any of those, whether it was a disability, whether it was just people telling you you couldn't do something, you perceived and you went past harder. And you also still strive harder today to make sure that, you know, you don't give anybody a chance to give that shot at you as well. You show them you're just as best as all the rest. I think that's one of the most important things as people that we need to start doing as well is we need to start focusing on like people are out here trying their best and they're doing what they have to do. 
to get through as well. But let's not make it to get through. Let's make it to where everyone can get enjoyment out of this life and make it one of the best ones possible. I think it helped me too with my son. My son, um, Joshua, he's our oldest, and he was born with, uh, he was born legally blind. And we weren't sure if he'd, he'd be completely blind when he was a kid. So we were always really concerned about that, his, his vision getting worse. And uh, his issue is neuromuscular, so it can't be fixed with surgery or whatever. But um, he had an alternative track. You know, he didn't want to be like academic or writer or career necessarily, um, especially because his, his visual issues make it really hard for him to read. But he always wanted to be an athlete. But, you know, he's he's legally blind. And, like, people are like, you can't do that. You can't be, a, you can't be an athlete. And he didn't, I, I was like, listen, man, people are going to tell you all your life, you can't do this, you can't do that. Go for it anyway. Don't listen to anybody but yourself. And I remember he was doing martial arts and stuff, and he did okay in that. But I remember at a certain point, he wanted to be in basketball. And I'm like, you're going to have a tough go as a legally blind person going for basketball. And that kid was out there with a the basketball shooting hoop every single day. The kid worked so hard, and he went for basketball, and he didn't get it, you know, because it's very competitive. And they were like, "What are you doing? You're legally blind. You can't be in basketball." And so he did. He went. We got him into Special Olympics. He did really well in Special Olympics. He, he continued to get gold, but he went through for wrestling in high school instead, because that's not so much, you know, tuned to vision. And he ended up doing varsity and doing really well in, in wrestling. So, you know, I think it's. I think, you know, the one thing that, you know, we're both talking about is it's not just writing or even academics. You know, even if you want to be an athlete, people are telling you you're never going to make it. you got to go for it. It's always looked like stories like Rudy. You know, the, the story of the story of Rudy with Sean Astin, you know, wanting to be a football player. That, to me, is like the best story, you know. And like Rocky, the original Rocky. I mean, that's a great story, too. It's like, that's America, man. Like, people tell you you can't do something, you're like, fuck you, I'm going to do it anyway. And that's teacher teacher tells you can't read because of a disability you throw a 15 chapter book at that bitch said that's 155 pages of fuck you you know that whole concept behind it a lot of times people take negativity and they're like oh that means i'm never going to be anything why don't you take it in the more positive route and turn that negative negativity into something that gets you motivated to go after something that you need to go after or want to pursue you know don't let it hold you back and I think that's the main takeaway people need to realize is that, like, even that's difficult for me to do at times. You know, I can say here, think this one minute and then think something the next. But it's the idea that we have this mentality as people to it's adopted to destroy others and put others down. But there's a primal thing about us where we have this key need just to help each other and care about each other that we need to refocus back on. I, I think that's something I have to think about a lot is I have a wicked tongue and I could be, I could be vicious when I'm in a bad mood and I have to think like, my, I have to be mindful every day. Like, is the thing I'm saying something that can prevent somebody from like being themselves or being their true self? And I really have to be careful because I don't want to like do to somebody what's been done to me. Just like casually not even thinking about it. And I think oftentimes people do do it casually. They don't think about the you know, you can't be an athlete because you're fat, or you can't be, you know, an academic because you're, you're stupid. And, like, you know, they don't, they probably don't even, they go home, they don't think about it. But, like, that tossed off word can have a huge impact on somebody else. And I think that's why I want to be mindful of what I say and how I act because 
you know, could have a big impact on something. And I don't want to be that douchebag with Colson giving an interview or something. I don't want to be that guy. Sometimes more, what's more powerful than a broken arm or just getting uh, physical damage is the type of mental things that we can put on other people as well. They say sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. But a lot of times, sometimes those words can cut deep and they leave more than just what a physical scar may remain, you know, emotional stuff too as well. And I think it's about turning that into fuel for your fire as well. Make it turn into something that you want to go after or pursue because you can really see a benefit from it. And Dean, I really appreciate you coming out and doing my podcast as well, too. I mean, you took the time out here to be able to come and have a conversation, and I really appreciate that. Thank you. I love talking to you. I would talk to you all day, man. It's great. Well, we, let's, let's, let's book a library session. I'm down. I got my library card. All right. Sounds good to me. Well, I want to give you here a minute at the end, too, to kind of promote your blog and anything else you want to promote, too. Sure. I'm the well-seasoned librarian on medium.com, and I write primarily for the uh, online magazine One Table, One World, which is all about food and how it affects and informs our world. Well, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast, and stay tuned for our next episode.